Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. This is Saqib welcoming you back on another episode of Tennis with an Accent. And if this was a corporate meeting, a quarterly call, let's take review of what's happened in the first three months and look forward to the clay season. And helping me do the honors is, I mean, this is rare. I have a generational talent here. We have Hall of Famer historian Steve Flink, always elevating this podcast by his presence. And then uh, Twitter powerhouse announcer Gil Gross. Uh, he's become a household name. They both don't need me to introduce them. Welcome to the show, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, this is cool, I, I think, for Steve and I because we've uh, Steve has been coming on on my YouTube channel and even before that, a radio station that I uh, had had been interning at, literally in high school, uh, for a very long time. So Steve and I have had discussions about tennis, uh, discussions that that I've cherished so much for uh, a lot of years now. So it's uh, it's cool to to join uh, to join on your podcast together. What year yeah. was that? When when was Steve first making his appearance for you? Mm, so I want to say it was 2015 or, uh, pr- yeah, I would say 2015 or 16. Nice. Yeah, my... Yeah. We've, had, my... we've had a good time to keep it. And the, I, I, I take credit for spotting young talent because I, I could tell, it, just as I have slightly older talent in you, but my point being that sometimes you can get a sense of somebody pretty quickly. And, and I think that was true in both of your cases with me. Gil was, was remarkable for someone so young in high school. His, his poise and his knowledge of the sport and his desire to, to sort of engross himself in it. And then I had the same sense with you from the time I first came on your podcast. So this is going to be very enjoyable today. Well, thanks for clubbing me with Gil Gross. I'm a journeyman compared to you both, but I'll take it. And run with it. So, I mean, I'll start with Gil first, uh, with Monday Match Analysis and so many podcasts, you're covering the pulse of sports so closely. Have the first three months gone according to what your expectations were? If you look at the leading names of the ATP, how would you sum that up, what you've seen so far? I would say yes and no. Uh, January was a terrific month, of course, for Novak Djokovic. And then, unfortunately, he wasn't as much of uh, someone who could be in the picture because he couldn't travel to the United States once again. But in February um, and March, I would say Daniil Medvedev, Yannick Sinner, and Carlos Alcaraz really carried the torch. And they were all three of them were terrific in almost every single, if not every single event that they entered into. We got to see a lot of matches between uh, that trio of players. And in a sense, that was re- a relief because Medvedev had had a difficult uh, 13, 12 to 14 month period uh, before then. He's really come back. Alcaraz has picked up where he left off in his breakthrough 2022. And Sinner's a player who we've always known uh, had the potential to be at the very top of men's tennis, and it feels like he's kind of blossoming as well. So now I think you reintroduce Novak into the mix, and uh, it has the potential to be uh, something really, really good. So Steve, let me quickly bring you in what Gil made some excellent observations. And, you know, Djokovic not able to play in the United States is an open secret. You know, that's how the last two years has been. 
So if you try to look at a positive spin on this picture, you think him uh, not playing this late in his career, he's still the best player in the game. Does it add more longevity, even though he's not looking to add longevity like this, but does it add more reserves in the fuel tank? Like he doesn't need too many tournaments to get back to his best. So no. how would you try to put a positive spin on this, his absence? Well, I think I think that's kind of the way he's been spinning it, but I don't know if it's spin. We're going to find out. I mean, look how well, look at all the disruption in the first half of last year, not going to Australia, going to Australia and being sent away and the whole, the whole first half of the year so disruptive, gets going on the clay a little bit better, but loses to Rafa in his defense of the Roland Garros crowd. And then suddenly turns it on at Wimbledon. And even though he couldn't play over the summer on the hard courts and go to the open, then he was the dominant figure in the fall and he and concluded the season by winning the ATP finals. And of course we saw, I guess Gil mentioned the great start to this year. So it seems like he can, he can benefit from playing less. He seems to believe that he can play less. He would have preferred to play those hard court events. However, to me, I don't know if Gil agrees or not. I feel like he could definitely benefit over the clay court season. Doesn't mean he's going to win Monte Carlo this week, but he's fresh and he'll want to play a lot on clay. And he may have an easier time peaking for the French. And to me, the big difference between this year and last year is that he was still trying to find himself and he wasn't feeling great. And when the things started in Monte Carlo, and it really did take him a while to get going. And even though he did win Rome and came into Roland Garros in good form, he wasn't quite there emotionally or mentally. And I feel like this year could be very, very different because he did get the matches at the start of the year that he didn't have last year by winning Adelaide and winning the Australian Open and then going to Dubai and making the semis. So he had plenty of matches. So even though he was sort of forced into a five-week break, I think this is going to be a very interesting period ahead for him as he chases these clay court prizes. What do you think, Gil? I think you're spot on about the difference between this year and last year, because in, in 2022, he's been very honest about the lingering effects of the trauma in Australia with the border situation. And then when you look in, in hindsight at some of the things we were seeing from him on court mentally, you start to connect those dots. The, the thing I would add on to it is, the sunshine double, I think, since I guess ever since the elbow operation has seemingly been de-emphasized. Novak hasn't played well at Indian Wells or Miami uh, for for a long time now, even when he was able to play the events uh, pre-pandemic. And I think that's because it is so far away from Roland Garros and he's coming off of the Australian Open. It's been better for him to take that time period to almost recuperate. And it's felt at times like he's doing that even when he's playing. So I don't think that part of the calendar anymore at this stage. When he was young, he could go through it and and expend all the energy that, that he wants in March, and it was no problem. But I think at this stage in his career, it's not an important time in the calendar for him, and it might help him that he, he was able to just rest up and, and get right, gear up for the clay. No, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, you could almost call it a blessing in disguise. A part of him really wanted to go, come to the States. He tried to see if there could be an exemption. It didn't work out. But I don't sense he was just that disillusioned by it. And, and now he's got this kind of energy and he's revitalized and he's eager to get on with the clay court campaign. Plus, he'll have a little bit more left in the tank post-Wimbledon as he gears up for the U.S. Open. Because too many years, 
I think he's come to the U.S. Open a bit jaded for many, many reasons. You look at his record there compared to Australia, and here's this guy we see as the preeminent hardcourt player of his generation. And he's got 10-0 and in Australian Open finals, 3-6 and six at the U.S. Open. And I think a lot of it has been things sort of catching up to him and, you know, mentally weary, any number of factors. But maybe that might change this year, too. So it's going to be fascinating to watch him over these next four or five months. Absolutely. And let's use Djokovic as the stepping stone for this conversation about previewing the clay court season. We are already halfway into Monte Carlo. So, Gil, again, first question for you. Uh, I was in Easter last week. I asked Casper Ruud, uh, is he the kind of guy who needs a lot of matches? And he kind of gave a very thoughtful answer, yes and no. But using that same question at this stage of his career, what is your analysis for Djokovic? What kind of match play he needs in the bag? How deep he has to go in these tournaments to go win his third role in Garros or be the firm favorite heading into Paris? I think on clay, he needs cardiovascular fitness, and that comes from the match play. What I've observed from Novak playing Monte Carlo the last couple of years, he's had some early defeats to Alejandro Davidovich Fakina and Dan Evans the year before that. It is just that his lung capacity isn't there, and it just forces him to to go for a little bit more and not have that shot tolerance that you need on a clay court. That's what I think builds up throughout the clay court season, and we've seen the the clay event that he's had the most success at is Rome uh, right up against Roland Garros from a scheduling standpoint, a little bit slower than Madrid. Um, I think that just goes to show you that it has been traditionally kind of a buildup for Novak where he's going to play better and better as Paris approaches. Steve, you see it similarly uh, at this stage, uh, you think? Yeah, I do. There's no accident. I think, in addition to what Gil was saying, I think uh, last year, perhaps even the year before, he also was fighting some kind of a, uh, he never was that specific about why, but not feeling that well either, which only exacerbated those problems that Gil's talking about with cardiovascular. But yeah, I mean, it's no accident that we see him peak for Rome so many times. He played well in Madrid last year in the great match against Alcaraz too. So he was, uh, frankly, that was a, that. That was a surprising stretch for me. That that he played so well in Rome and Madrid, and so well the first four rounds of Roland Garros, and then by his standards was very up and down against the top of the line Rafa when he lost their quarterfinal and and in four sets should have been five because he had a five two lead in the fourth set. But it it, the, the, it things are set up pretty nicely for him now. Now I just want to add one thing to what what Gil was talking about with the top performers before we move on to the clay, but it ties into the clay. Carlos was so good in the Sunshine Double and winning Indian Wells. And then, of course, he got to the semis of Miami and lost that hard-fought match with Sinner. And he started having some injury issues there, which have now caused, caused him to pull out of Monte Carlo. We're a little concerned about his health. We have to wonder where, where's, what's going to happen with Rafa on the clay. When will he start? He had to miss Monte Carlo. And then we're, we're watching to see Zarev, you know, who's going to play Medvedev tomorrow as we speak in the round of 16 and Monte Carlo to see how, how he'll perform on the clay. Cause it's always been his preferred surface as well. So I think we're in for uh, some, some really compelling developments over the next couple of weeks on the clay to see who's going to emerge and to see if Carlos can hopefully regain his health quickly between the problem with the hand and then the additional injury he suffered against Sinner is get him back to full strength because he hadn't been back very long. It's worrisome to me. That Carlos, who, who would, would be out that long and miss the Australian and 
play that Sunshine Double. And by the end of the Sunshine Double, in one long match, the only long match that he had in the two events, granted, he played a few events on clay before that, but it's, you know, that he got hurt after that. So it's like in injury upon injury, and he doesn't seem to be able to go for a very long stretch without another one. And I'm getting increasingly concerned about it. What, what are your thoughts, Gil? I, I'm not concerned about this latest issue unless he pulls out of Barcelona uh, slash Madrid, particularly Madrid. Just reading into what the issues are, he said he has post-traumatic arthritis in the left yeah. hand. We saw him hit his left hand against the court. Right. The other thing is he said lower spine discomfort. So to me, it sounds like fairly mild injuries to me. And considering it was a physical sunshine double and that Monte Carlo isn't one of the mandatory Masters 1000 tournaments, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not so bad, but because it was such an arduous sunshine double, he, he almost pulled a pulled a sh early ripcord or a, an easy ripcord because there was some discomfort. Uh, I'll be more concerned if he pulls out of his next event. Yeah, okay, I, so I, I hear you. And I, I hope, I hope you're not being too optimistic and I, it, it's a reasonable uh, analysis, but I'm just sort of looking at him really sort of from the end of last year when things went wrong there and not being able to play the ATP finals right up until now. And I don't like the pattern particularly, but you're right. These particular injuries should, he should be able to recover from them pretty quickly. And then the question is going to be, okay, if he comes back in Barcelona and we get into a string of events in Rome and Madrid and, and Roland Garros, can he stay healthy totally healthy through that period and then come into Wimbledon feeling right as well that's going to be the test and we'll revisit this topic and I'll have both of you weigh in because when we talk about center but right now Steve I'm going to stay with you Gil and Gruskin and Vanch and a lot of analysts on Twitter talk about tier one tier two I don't know if you're paying attention so taking clay as a measure if you have to divide your ATP favorites into tier one tier two can you come up with a list? Can you easily compartmentalize who belongs at the highest of orders? And we can leave Nadal out because we don't know how much and when he's coming back. Uh, otherwise, he's always top-notch in clay. But the field that's uh, healthy and is competitive right now, if you want to take a stab at this, and then I'm sure Gil's been asked this question a few times, so he can be in his uh, tier one, tier two choices. Well, how many are we putting in each tier? You are called and there are no rules. Yeah. This is I mean, I, I mean, I, I obviously I see Djokovic in the forefront. As much as he talks about the difficulty of adjusting to clay, I think he's going to, over the course of, of whatever goes on in Monte Carlo, will lead to really good things, I suspect, especially in Rome and Madrid. And, and I, I expect Sinner to be quite consistent. Unfortunately, one of them is going to be out by the quarters this week because they could meet in the quarters. And then I, 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 I Surprisingly, I'm going to put Medvedev in tier one because I think something's coming over. We're going to find out again. It's too early to say as we speak right now, but I think his head has been cleared. He's, he went through five hardcore tournaments, won four of them. He only lost once in that stretch, and it was in the finals to Carlos. And I, some, I get the feeling that sort of a light bulb has gone off and that we're going to see him play great on the clay as well. And Tier two, I don't know. I'd certainly have Zarev in that group at tier two. Carlos, Carlos, I'm going to put him in, if he's healthy and Gill's projection is correct physically, then I'm putting him up in tier one with the others because I think he loves the club. 
Let's see, pass. Yes, tier tier one. So I don't. That's why I say, how many do we put in tier one? I don't know if Sitsapas will be quite as consistent as the others. Like to get Gil's feelings on that. He's up. You know, he's shown with how much he loves Monte Carlo, and as we speak, he's going for three titles in a row, and he's always loved that. And did make the finals of the French two years ago, and you know, beat Medvedev, beat Zverev, and had Novak down two sets to love in the final. And yet last year didn't have a good role in Garros. And, and despite having won Monte Carlo at the, at the start, and he was in the finals of Rome. So I, I would have to put him up in that tier one group as well. And it's hard to say, that's why I want to have a number of players. You know, I, I, I'd like to be told a, sure. a, what the limit is because it's so, there's so many top tier cl- players on the clay here that it's hard to leave out. Who would you leave out there, Gil, that I mentioned? So the well, the reason why I, I like the the tier system is because you can kind of determine well which players are on the same plane, right? Like which players are on equal footing, uh, and that kind of dictates how many uh, the number of players that you put in each tier. So for me, my tier one is Alcaraz, Djokovic. That's it. Uh, I think everyone else is. Uh, or healthy Nadal, but if we're leaving Nadal out, as we said that we would. Uh, Tier one to me is only Djokovic and Alcaraz. And then after that, I think there's a gap. Uh, And then in tier two, I'd I'd put Tsitsipas, who I'm concerned about. I don't know what's happening with the right shoulder. Is that one-handed topspin backhand going to be where it needs to be to have a good clay court season? I'm just, I'm not sure because it hasn't been a conventional period of recovery for him where he sits out and then, you know, make sure it's back to a hundred percent and then comes back. So it's a gray area for me in that respect. I agree with you, Steve, that, that Medvedev is probably going to surprise anyone who feels that he's going to be a pushover on clay. I think anyone who feels that way is in for a surprise because the game from hard court to clay these days, it's just not different enough for us to, expect that a player who is a top three player in the world on hard court isn't going to be a top 10 player in the world on clay. I, I just don't think that's realistic anymore. So I think. No, Gil, you know what? I would, I would, I would say that totally agree, but I would, I, I'm looking at, at Medvedev as a top four on clay right now. That's what I'm saying. I, I think he's going to be that good. I think it'd be better than top 10, but the first couple of events will tell us a lot. Sure. Let's see if, you know, if he if he if he happens to lose to Zarev tomorrow, that could change things. But I just feel like he's in the right frame of mind. I think your point is so well taken. There's no reason why, you know, given the, the two surfaces, the guy shouldn't be able to make the transition. And I think this has largely been in Medvedev's head. He did say he has to change some things on the clay, uh, but he also admitted that it wouldn't have wouldn't be a major transformational change. It would be some more minor adjustments to to uh, get himself you know better results on that surface and chris eubanks made a great point on tc live that there's also a way a lot of times good players take some pressure off themselves by saying this he's of course expecting nothing but excellence he also knows that you know on a on, on chatrier an informed nadal or carlos alcaraz could be tougher outs but he's still daniel medvedev he's gonna like his chances against the rest of the field so, Gil, what does uh, your Tier 2 and Tier 3 look like if you have more names to plot and then we can go back and forth in this conversation? Sure. Uh, so, my Tier 2 would be Tsitsipas, uh, Sinner, and 
I think after that, I, I have to go to a, a tier three with Medvedev and Rude and um, Zverev, who, you know, I mean, I think he can, he can climb the ranks. I just need to see it uh, because the, the things had been trending in the right direction for Zverev up until Miami. That was a strange loss to me against Taro Daniel. And he just doesn't have the big victory, the signature victory yet this year. I'm sure it'll come, but for now, I'm going to, I'm going to put him there. Uh, I something tells me, yeah, Kasparud to me is tier three. He also hasn't gotten it going this year. Uh, but, but he, to me, is someone who I, I really trust to go deep. I trust to go very deep. I don't trust to beat Djokovic or beat Alcaraz. Uh, he hasn't really shown or beat Nadal. Hasn't shown that he can be all that competitive in those kinds of matches at the end of the tournament, so to speak. I feel something. I feel like I'm missing a name. Right, so let me throw in a question. Maybe you can fill a name out of this. So you said tennis is similar. And I was in Easter last week, and one of my good friends, Skip Schwartzman, said Kechmanovic is playing hardcore tennis and clay, and so is Hubi Herkac. And when we saw Halis and Kasparud, their balls and their trajectory of the ground strokes were more the clay court tennis. So using that question as a benchmark, Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, can they be tier three? They don't have Taylor doesn't have much of a clay resume, but what he's been doing, how does that translate into potentially having a clay successful season? Taylor can be Tommy. I have a concern, so let me start with Taylor. There's an assumption that he's not going to play well on clay. Maybe it's the history of Americans on clay courts. Maybe it's his movement. He likes the slower bounce, the slower and higher bounce. It helps him load up his forehand and use that shot. To, to really control baseline points on the clay. He's adamant that he's going to be able to play well on the clay and has been for a long time. And to your point, he got injured last year after making the Monte Carlo quarterfinal. And we didn't really get to see Taylor Fritz 2.0 because that's what he is now. He's not the same player that he was in 2020 or 2019. He's much, much improved. We haven't really gotten to see that player on clay. It's no coincidence that Indian Wells, the slowest and highest bouncing hardcore of the year, has been Taylor Fritz's best. He likes that. So I expect him to, to do very well. I think he does deserve a spot in Tier 3. For Tommy Paul, for the, it's the same reason why I like Taylor Fritz. That's the reason why I, I have more concern about Tommy, which is the forehand. That's the, the weakness in his game. He doesn't have that consistent high-margin aggression off of the forehand. And he relies much more on the transition game, hitting approach shots and coming forward to create his offense and his flat backhand, which isn't as effective on clay. For that reason, I, I much prefer Tommy on hard courts, even though he's a junior Roland Garros champion. He beat Taylor Fritz in the final uh, of junior Roland Garros. I think it was 2015. Even though Tommy won that match, I prefer Fritz on the clay. What do you think, Steve? Totally agree. Totally agree. I also think, I was interested in your analysis of Taylor because I watched him a few hours ago beating Stan Wawrinka. And as impressed as I was with his forehand, I, I loved the way he was getting the better of Stan backhand to backhand. The ball was sitting up for him on the backhand at times and he was lacing it cross court, good angles, great depth. Yeah, I totally agree. Tommy, I expect much better results from him as soon as we get past Wimbledon. He might do well at Wimbledon, but I, I certainly expect some first-rate hardcore performances from him. If he did anything extraordinary on the clay, that would be a surprise to me. 
But don't you guys think movement is also something that's been not an Achilles heel for this generation of American men, but there was always the erotic years and the fish years that they slide after the stroke, they don't slide into the stroke. And when Tim Mayer and I spoke a couple of months ago, he surprised me by putting Paul ahead of Fritz, Tiafo, and Coda for overall success. And he said he would believe an American man is ready to win a slam when an American man is consistently making a deep road inroads to a Monte Carlo or a Madrid or Roland Garros. So he put Paul ahead of those three names. And let's also bring Tiafo in the conversation. See if you can go first and then Gil, you can weigh in. Well, Tiafo, that was a nice, mo- nice week for him in Houston. That's different clay. It's American clay. It's not the same thing, but it should propel him into the European uh, clay court circuit with some confidence. And I, he can play on anything. I still think he's a better hardcore player. I don't agree with Tim with all due respect, because Tim is a great technical, the technical diagnosis he gives the game is, is remarkable. But I, I, I didn't quite understand that conclusion on Tommy. I see it more the way Gil does, and I see him as more a hardcore player at this point. Uh, but the, the results will tell us a lot over, over the coming weeks. That observation did surprise me from Tim Mayo. Yeah, me too. Uh, Gil, what do you think? Sure. I, I think the movement is definitely a big attribute on clay. If you're, if you're very athletic, you can make extra balls. It, you can be very hard to finish against. And Paul is a terrific mover. But I, I think the forehand is a bigger deal. And if you look at the players who have actually been you know, elevated by clay, Nadal at the top of that, generating pace on the forehand, uh, high margin aggression, heavy topspin forehand, Casper Ruud, who's been elevated so much uh, by the clay. Look at Matteo Berrettini, who is not a good mover. He, his results have been terrific on the clay because he can find forehands, he can rip forehands, he gets through the surface. So I feel that uh, although, and, and maybe it's because in the early 2000s and in the 90s, if you look at a, a Sergi Bruguera or, or a Federico, uh, uh, or not, not Federico, uh, Correa, right? Um, these players had all this clay court success built on their legs and their movement but I'm not seeing that as much in the modern game. Uh, Pass. I should have totally mentioned Pass, elite high-level forehand. I Nowadays, I feel that that's a bigger deal on the clay, a forehand where you can finish from the back of the court than necessarily, well, you can grind and you can get to more and more balls. Yeah, Gil, don't you think it's it's nearly as important on the hard though? I mean, to me, I think it's the cornerstone of most of these for most of these players. It's almost not quite as essential uh, on on the hard courts that you that you you've got that great power and punch off the forehand side plus the consistency. Because I think what you're knocking your criticism of Tommy, I think is is largely about the inconsistency, right? Because we've seen him have some some good stretches and patches off the forehand. He just doesn't sustain it. Yeah, exactly. It, it is the consistency and not only on a large scale, week to week. I mean, even point to point or set to set, the forehand yeah. can be it can be in and out. I, I guess, yeah, certainly the forehand is a, a huge deal now in the modern game, regardless of surface. On a hard court, I think it's not as imperative for Paul to finish with the forehand uh, because his transition game is is more of an asset. The approach shot does more damage because it might skid through the court better. 
your footing when you get to the net is a little bit better when it comes to changing direction and covering the net. Someone like Tiafo and Paul, both of them love to use their movement forward, their athletic movement forward to finish points. So I don't think it's as much of a of a knock if if they're not finishing quite as consistently with their forehand. Yeah, fair enough. I just feel like uh, Tommy, it would give him different options. If he had more faith in the forehand, then maybe the transition game is not quite as critical. And he could feel like he could finish off points more effectively from the backcourt and mm-hmm. and feel like he could depend on that forehand. It would be nice to see him have both options at his disposal more than he does now. But I just want to add one thing about that, Saqib and, and uh, Gil, is that I do think that Brad Stein, who you've had on your show, Gil, is one of the best coaches in the business. And he's aware of what we're talking about. And I suspect it's something that he's going to, you know, that he, he doesn't neglect they, they can't spend a lot of time on it during tournaments, but it is something they can address in, in between events. I would like to also do some counter food for thought because Gil and you both made some excellent points. Uh, ATP today is more forehand oriented. I get it. But it's still, I think, compared to TFO and Fritz, I think Tommy Paul covers the backhand zone a little better. He doesn't have to run around too many backhands. I think that also in a long best of five set match and the sample size I used with Tim Mayotte was in 2018, I think, or 2019 on Susan Longland. He went shot for shot for three sets against a peak Dominic team. And if mm-hmm. that version of Tommy Paul shows up and four years later more improved, I can see him making inroads, but I'm not sold who's going to be the best clay court among these three. I was having high hopes for Corda, but I, I hope his wrist heals soon because that's the guy I thought when I had you guys in mind like a month ago, I thought a good 10 minutes on the show would be talking about Corda, but we really can't. Uh, do much because till he plays next week. Uh, so, Gil, let me go back to you. A uh, couple of the names you should throw out there is Muzetti, supremely talented. What do you make of six love? Six love is like let's throw that out. That doesn't happen yeah. in the tour. But what do you make of the ceiling of this guy? A lot of people believe he could be in the mix of things for Clay. He had a great indoor season last year as well. But where do you put him potentially? Uh, in you know, is he tier three or is he one of those guys who waiting? to break through into tier three. What have you seen so far? Yeah, he's not in that. He's not on that level for me at this time. He struggled this year. First of all, that win against Ketsmanovic in the first round was good, but uh, Mimir had just played the Estoril final. It was clearly a, a tough turnaround. It might've been the first time he even played on those Monte Carlo clay courts. I'm not sure. I mean, he, I'm sure he got a hit in the morning of the match, but that was a difficult situation. Up until that Ketsmanovic match, Musetti this year against top 100 opponents uh, was one and four. So he's now two and four. So I've been a little bit disappointed from a results standpoint. But from a game standpoint, my concern is, okay, your best shot is your one-handed backhand. And I think it's hard to make a living on tour if that's your best shot because of a lot of the things we've been talking about, the importance of the serve, the importance of the forehand, that's kind of the breadwinner on a point-in and point-out basis for a lot of these players. And for Musetti to try to to not really have much in the form of service power and not really have the big damaging forehand, I love the backhand. I think his backhand down the line, when it comes to the timing of it, 
is some of the best I've ever seen. I'm, and it's a remarkable highlight reel shot, but is that going to win you matches on a consistent basis? It's tough. I, I would point to the, the player he's reminding me of, and this player has had and continues to have a great career. So it's not a negative comparison, but it's Richard Gazquet, where you're not serving big, your forehand's not big. Okay, your backhand is a gem. That's great, but is it going to get you to the upper echelon? That's tough. That's, that's quite, quite the observation. I had Gasquet in mind too. Uh, another name that we kind of have overlooked is Holger Runa. He, to me, again, we are not talking potential. We're only talking performance, the great great Agassi line about Winspedia. Uh, but Runa, at the same time, you can't overlook the potential as, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Steve, how has that guy impressed you so far? He plays all-court tennis. He's not afraid to come to the net. Played a great match against Djokovic and Bercy, and today against Dominic Team, uh, he made him look. You know, I don't want to say second tier. Team still trying to find his game, but Runa never seemed. In, you know, the outcome never seemed in doubt after the first set. So, what do you make of Runa? Do you want to put him in tier two, tier three, and your larger observation on him? Yeah, I'd be torn between tier two and tier three, but he could he could get on. A real role here. He seems to, I, I, he he they, he just recently split up with Moritaglu. I don't think that's going to make much difference. I think that he's whatever he gleaned from him over these past months, he, he was able he was able to use to his benefit. I, I I like I like his game a lot. I I I feel like he's he's got all the tools from the backcourt, and the serve needs improvement, but he's getting there. And it, it, to me, it's a, to me it's largely about. Gil, it's about his disposition, his temperament, his desire, his his stated goals, just putting his goals out there on the table and saying, this is what I want to do, unafraid to do it. The win over Novak, there's no doubt that Novak got tense in that match in that final in Paris, but nonetheless, the way he was able to fend Novak off at the very end when Djokovic was threatening to break back and get into a tie break in the third set was very impressive to me because you could feel that you almost felt Holger could barely breathe. He was so excited about what he was trying to achieve. So I just feel like he's he's immensely ambitious, and that he's going to eventually be able to back up a lot of his a lot of his claims because he'll put the work in. What we're going to see in the next few months, I'm not as certain about. I I I, I you know it hasn't been the best. It hasn't been as good a start to 2023 as I expected, coming off the great ending to last year. It's been okay, but I feel like uh, we, we need to see some. I, 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 I'm not sure what we're going to see from him over the next few months, but I know he's expecting a lot more of himself than uh, than has been the case so far. Don't you agree with that, Gil? Yeah, I do. And, and yeah, it has been okay, especially for a 19-year-old. But yeah. the expectations were just so high because of what he did in the fall. Now, we've we've seen it before where players can tear up that part of the season and it might not carry over to the next year, uh, like uh, Grigor Dimitrov or Karen Hachinov in 2018 may have fooled us a little bit. Now, I don't think Runa in the long run is going to go down that path. I think he's going to be an elite player. Uh, but were the expectations a little bit outsized for this year? Probably. Uh my biggest observation recently has been his shot selection. 
I don't know what kind of player he's trying to be. I think he, he what the player he should be trying to be is a player who can be offensive when the opportunity presents itself and patient when the opportunity calls for it. Uh, he has the ability to play both games, so to speak, but it, it feels like he's not reading the game right now, that he's either making a, a lot of overly ambitious decisions to be hyper-aggressive or he's deciding, well, I need to make a lot of balls right now, and he's completely passing up the opportunity to be aggressive. So shot selection, which is not atypical for a 19-year-old, uh, for me is holding him back at the moment. Yeah, it's understandable at his age, completely understandable. But I, I also think it's just thinking clearly, not getting flustered. I thought really he should have been able, he should have beaten Rublev in Australia, in my view. Squanders and a lot of that. Yes, he maybe was. He had some physical issues, but also was partly in his mind. He would get ahead of himself. And sometimes, if you're thinking too much about the scoreline and you're playing to that, and you've got you're getting ahead of yourself, that can cloud your view, and that can that can have something to do with the poor shot selection. I do think we'll see some improvement in that. And I, I, I must say, I think you know we're going to be looking at some pretty dynamic results from him by the end of the summer. You know. Let's see him get through this clay court stretch and Wimbledon. And then I have a feeling his best tennis will come over the second half of the year, starting post Wimbledon. That's just my guess. So, Gil, let me go back to you on uh, Runa. And uh, small sample size, him and Alcaraz both recorded one win each over Novak Djokovic, who's been the absolute standard for a decade now. You know, all roads to the championship go through him. So comparing these two guys and also throw Korda, who almost beat Djokovic, uh, in Adelaide, I believe, or this year, yeah. So look at these guys. They are very comfortable at net. So my uh, thesis was, after I saw these small sample size performances, that unlike their seniors in Medvedev and Zverev, who are a bit one-dimensional, to beat Novak and maybe even beat an inform or healthy Rafa, you need to have more variety in the toolkit. Find the short selection will always be uh, could always be better. But do you think these guys, just the comfort of the net, kind of gives them the edge to take on Djokovic. Again, the sample size is very small. Something, you know, Medvedev's where I've had beaten Novak, but do you see a similar observation? Like when their games get better, they have just more well-rounded uh, arsenal compared to uh, the other guys, like even Tsitsipas included? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Although Tsitsipas ha- has a, an excellent net game himself. His big hole is the backhand. Uh, I think... Djokovic and Nadal have ushered not only I would say ushered this era of of defensive excellence from the baseline where we're seeing players become so adept at retreating in their court position, making extra balls and neutralizing the point. And a lot of tennis tactics, I think, is is push pull and the the push against that pull is, okay, if players like Medvedev and Zverev are going to come along uh, and they are going to follow in in Nadal and Djokovic's footsteps and just be so good at dropping back behind the baseline and making, almost building a wall and an impenetrable wall seemingly at times and making it hard to finish against, the counter to that is you must come forward and finish at net. 
that is why Alcaraz can blow out Daniil Medvedev in the Indian Wells final. It's because that defense that so much of the tour is so confound, confounded by that Medvedev comes or brings to the table on a hard court, there's an antidote for that. Nick Kyrgios had that antidote uh, over the course of the summer last year that we saw against Medvedev. You have to come forward and finish with drop volleys and singles. Yeah, I, I do think that the next step for these younger players uh, like Alcaraz and Runa, uh, they have come they have come up and they have understood that they need to have a comfort level in the forecourt. All right, so Steve, let me ask you yeah, a larger just, question. I, I, Sorry, I, go ahead. I would say at this point, Carlos has got more, a lot more comfort. I, I think Runa will get there. I think he's very daring. I think he's he's not afraid to come forward. Carlos is really very very comfortable up there and very confident up there. And I, I, I like that. And, and, but Holger has got the right way of thinking, Gil. I mean, he, he'll, you know, he, he, he understands that part, but Carlos is exceptional. I would just want to say, I do find it really interesting to see what happens the next time Carlos and, and Daniel meet, because that was a slow court out there. I thought Daniel played a very confused match. Carlos was knew exactly what he wanted to do. And he, he showed off the, the diversity, the, the completeness of his game beautifully. And he served well. He did everything well. I thought it was one of the most muddled matches I've ever seen Medvedev play. He didn't seem to even have a sense of trying to prolong the rallies, Gil. He, he, got, he sort of got impatient and flustered. And I don't think it was the Medvedev we're accustomed to seeing. And Carlos had a lot to do with it. The question is, how does Daniel counter that the next time they meet? It'll be a very... A significant meeting, in my view, to see how how that to look at the shape of that rivalry in the next few years to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, I think that can be very, uh, like you said, it can pretty much be the footprint of what to expect. Yeah, so Steve, let's let's throw in a bit of a history lesson here. Uh, I'm guilty as charged, and so many other people. We always, anytime Carlos Alcaraz or Yannick Sinner mention, we bring out the comparison of the big three. So I want to give you the floor. Sometimes you have to be patient. Even the great Sampras after he won in 1990 took him a good two years or three years to win his next major. The maturation point came later. As great as Federer was, he didn't win in his teens. Not everybody matures like a Becker or a Nadal or an Alcaraz. So how much patience we should exhibit when we are talking about Carlos, when we're talking about Sinner, Olga Runa, Korda, and how much should we just enjoy their tennis in the moment? I know we all like to compare, but I want your view on this. Not that Gil is doing this or others are doing this, but there's always a sense of comparison. Oh, Nadal did this and Alcaraz, which is good. That's a yardstick, but at the same time, can we also enjoy a player independently and give him some breathing room? We should. We should. I, I agree with that. That's a fair point. I, I think it's interesting you bringing up Sampras because, you know, he, at least the, the parallel to me with Sampras and Alcaraz is that they did get on the board at 19. So they knew what was possible, even if there were going to be growing pains to follow. And we don't know how it's going to play out with Alcaraz these next few years, whether he has to go through what Sampras did in 91 and 92 before uh, displaying his mastery of the game and taking off from there. And in Sampras's case, residing at number one in the world for six years in a row. So I, I, I don't think there's any harm. And I, I thought it was exciting for the game and, and for Alcaraz to see the possibilities and win that U.S. Open last year when it was there for the taking. And, uh, but you're right. The others should not be excessively criticized. You know, Sinner, we forget, is still just 21. Let's, 
let's give him a little time to grow into his talent. And there's all the signs, as Gil pointed to earlier, there's some very uh, encouraging signs from him over the early stages of this year. We're seeing some significant improvement. And, and the same with the others. I think we, we let, let, let them have time. And we're seeing that these careers are now stretching into the 30s. And maybe that's becoming more the norm. So guys don't have to feel like they've got to do it all by 25, 26, 27. That takes a little pressure off. And the fans have got to be patient and, and let them all improve at their own rate. So Sen is a good point. Now, Gil, we were talking about Alcaraz at the top of the hour of the show. And I want to ask you this. Whenever Sinner gets a niggle, uh, Twitter reacts like his body is weak, is brittle, and you know, there's a good sample size that he does get injured. But when Alcaraz gets injured, it's more like overplaying. So how do you, as an analyst, differentiate between the two injuries? They're like, Sinner's like two years older. Do you think the Twitter assessment is good, that Sinner is brittle and Alcaraz is not? Are we being fair? <laughs> uh, I think... I think we maybe are being fair because Alcaraz has fully matured physically. And that has been the message even from his team at the end of uh, off season heading into 2022 Alcaraz showed up to Australia in a sleeveless Nike top with massive muscles. His leg muscles grew as well. And that was kind of the, the first comment is, Whoa, he, he really, he really bulked up. He looks like a, a man now, a prof- not just any man, a professional athlete man, an elite professional athlete man. So we know that for Alcaraz, it's not a maturation process of getting stronger. And a lot of injury prevention is just making sure that your soft, the soft tissue ligaments and your joints are being supported by strong muscles that are going to uh, give you the ability to last throughout an entire tennis season. Uh, but for Sinner, visually, it's not that. Uh, by all accounts, this last offseason, the message from his team is that in the last offseason, that was the main focus, was still strengthening, building up, building up. So what Alcaraz has already done, and a lot of this, I think, is is genetic, Saqib, about just what part of your physical development uh, happens when what Alcaraz has already completed center is still in progress. And that's why I think their injuries are framed differently, especially when you look at this Alcaraz left hand thing, a lot of comments that, that I've read and that have been asked to me in, in my mailbags, for example, have been Gil Alcaraz. It seems like he's too reckless with his body that he's going to hurt himself playing like this. Well, in Miami, he really took a dive at a return of serve that he didn't necessarily uh, need to do. Now, I, I think that it's hard. It'll be very hard to change that about him. And I'm not sure that should be changed about him, but that's where you look at Alcaraz's injuries and Sinner's injuries. And there is a difference there. All right. So let's take a deeper yeah, dive into a quick comment. Just a quick follow-up to Gilly. Sure. And I don't disagree with any of it. I, I, I think it's great analysis, but I still, I get back to my earlier point. I still worry that Carlos is susceptible to into a variety of injuries that the game, and it's not just him. I worry about all of them because the game is so physical. Now the physicality only seems to in, increase exponentially, you know, e- each couple of years and they're playing so much. And, and I just feel like, this, as great as the trainers are, Gil, they, the one thing they're not able to do is prevent these injuries as much as hard as they try. And also, 
these guys with their schedules, it gets complicated. They just don't know how well they're going to do. I mean, uh, you, you don't know that in Carlos's case that you're going to go right through Indian Wells and be in the semis in Miami, and maybe it finally catches up to you. Maybe he would have, you know, it could have played out differently. So I, I still worry that all of them are tremendously susceptible to injuries that can keep them out. And that may be a case of having to navigate it and, and manage it the way Rafa has been able to do, because who, who among us would ever have expected when Rafa was 22 or 24, that we'd still be talking about his capacity to try to come back and win a 15th Roland Garros this year. I mean, he never thought he would play much beyond 30. So he found a way to deal with serious injuries all kinds of injuries. The knees were the main primary problem initially, but we didn't even know what was going on with the foot. And then we can talk about four or five others while while we're having that conversation. So I have a feeling that Sinner and Alcaraz and all these guys are going to have to, over time, manage those injuries and and make sure they don't try to come back too soon, which has been one of Rafa's wisest moves in recent years, is not rushing in and understanding that give himself the time. I'm sure he was thirsty to get out onto the clay in Monte Carlo. It's a tournament he loves so deeply. But he wisely said, no, I'm not ready yet. I'm not coming back until I am. You know, the famous Agassi quote, I think, was it like Montreal 2005 when he lost to Nadal? He said yeah. the kid's writing checks, his body won't be able to cash, and, you know, that checkbook's still working. But yeah, Agassi yeah. wasn't too off. I think Nadal's an anomaly. I think he's not the norm. Uh, so, Gil, uh, follow up on Sinner. Uh what do you see as his ceiling? I know we're digressing, but this kind of conversation has a potential to go there. Yeah. So do you see Sinner like growing into someone like Zverev, like in terms of like physicality? And then obviously his upside seems a little higher to me than Zverev because his forehand is such a weapon. He's not anywhere a defensive baseliner. So where do you see Sinner's projection? Like say the next time we're having this conversation, say next year's French Open. Well, I think his ceiling is number one in the world. And a lot of that is based off of his trajectory, uh, which has been so impressive and positive. What, I, what I've really loved about Sinner more than anything is what a, a tinkerer he is. And it reminds me a little bit of uh, the big three, but particularly Djokovic and Nadal in that sense, when it comes to evolving. Federer had some good evolutions as well. But Sinner, even early in his career, it seems that every weakness has gotten better. So the serve, not only has the serve improved, that technique is nothing like it was two years ago because they continue to try to make that as good as it possibly can be. That to me is just, it's not that, oh, his serve is going to make him number one in the world. No, the mentality is, the that to me is champion's mentality, which is that we are going to be willing to continue to experiment and change and work on things. Uh, the volleys have gotten better. The movement, the physicality, they've put in so much work. I don't think that's come naturally to him, but he's a more uh, quicker and more explosive, explosive player now when he has to move into the corners. Uh, mentally, he's gotten better. He used to be very in his shell on the court, didn't get the crowd on his side, didn't use positive emotion to his advantage. Now he comes and he fist pumps and he, he gets himself motivated. He plays with fire. So there have been so many improvements that I've seen uh, from him on tour, and it's been continuous, and that gives me great hope for what he can be. Couldn't agree more. And I, the one thing I would add, Gil, is I feel like the forehand is 
I'm a, I feel a lot better about his forehand these days in holding up under pressure. There were times when he could really spray the forehand a year or two ago. I don't see that anymore. I also think we're, we're witnessing an emerging great rivalry between Carlos and Sinner. I mean, the tennis they, they played in Miami was spectacular, as it was at the U.S. Open last year, which was probably the match of the year. Uh, the five-setter where Carlos recovered from match point down to beat Sinner. Obviously, it was a key to his winning the U.S. Open. I think we're going to see them meet on the premier stages so many times across the next five to ten years. I'm very optimistic that they will push each other to the hilt. And I don't see either one of them dominating in that rivalry. I see, I mean, look, last year, granted, maybe he played Carlos Gill at the right times, but you know, uh, Sinner beat him at Wimbledon. He beat him on the clay. He almost beat him at the Open. Now he beats him in Miami. And I feel like it was a good match in Indian Wells. And it's always hanging in the balance. And he's got so much power from the back of the court to combat Carlos. He's not at quite as versatile as Carlos. But on the other hand, he's explosive. So I, I'm just very uh, excited about the potential for that rivalry. And when I was talking to Dean Goldfein, few months ago, then I also had the same conversation with Alex Kruskin about Korda. He He's almost as tall as Sasha Zverev and Daniil Medvedev, and he weighs 25 pounds less than or 20 pounds less than Zverev. And Kruskin, I think, or Goldfine told me that Korda only started doing weights last year. So there's mm-hmm. also that potential to put on more mass muscle. And, you know, Jess Green has been, you know, attributed with a lot of uh, physicality. Uh, bring a lot of physicality to Andy Murray and Sasha Zverev's game. So these guys are still growing to their own, I think. Uh, and Gil's absolutely right. Carlos may just uh, be trending ahead of his years, that he's probably at the weight and the muscle mass that they want him to play. He remains explosive and he has uh, that stamina, endurance. But the other guys still maybe who are like a couple of years older could be still a work in progress on where their actual physicality could be. So I don't. I think the conversation is, is a bit different for each of them. That's uh, that's what I've gathered the last few months. Gil, how do you see that? Yeah, Corda has been someone who's been very patient with his career from the start. His his parents uh, wanted him to have a, a more normal childhood. So he is not, and similar to Ben Shelton, you know, he was not someone who was traveling to Europe at 13 years old to play tournaments. He stayed in the country. Uh, he had a much more normal upbringing. And did that delay his readiness as a very young player to play on the tour? Yes, probably. But but they have trusted, and I, I think they know best. You know, both of his parents were, were professionals themselves. Uh, it's going to set him up for success in the long run. He didn't burn out. Uh, he, he has a, a good mentality, a fresh perspective. He's a professional. He has that maturity. Uh, that that kind of comes from that. On the physical side of things, he has also been behind uh, in a big way where he just has not been ready to be a, a top player from a physical from the physical side. And uh, it seemed like they were trying to starting to turn that corner. And now we've had this wrist injury, which hopefully will clear itself up. So we'll see what happens, but that's why, the I think the dark secret, not just of tennis, but just of professional sports, is just how genetic this can be sometimes, where a lot of these athletes are working as hard as they possibly can. But at the end of the day, everybody's bodies are different, and 
that plays into it. That plays into it in a big way. It's the thing that is is the least fun to talk about. It's so much fun to talk about the work that everybody's putting in and the improvements and the strengths and the weaknesses. Uh, but a big part of it is also just what is the card you are dealt in terms of how physically uh, imposing are you going to be? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I've long argued that tennis is a contact sport. I mean, because these guys look, look at how rigorous it is physically. Obviously it's not technically contact sport, but it might as well be for the strain they put on their elbows, on their shoulders, on their knees, every part of the body and the, the nature of the, of the exchanges they have from the baseline. And I have to say, Gil, in the case of Corda, I felt so sorry for this guy because he goes to Adelaide. He was off to such a great start to the year and he had a match point against Novak and Novak beat him in a terrific match. And then he, it does beat Medvedev at the Australian Open before losing there. And so you had the feeling he was off and running. I mean, that he, if he could just recover from that wrist injury relatively quickly, he could build on the confidence he was gaining there. So I do hope We'll see him, that he'll be back again soon because he's just the smoothness from the baseline, the, the, the court craft. It's, it's a, and it's remarkable, Gil, because you're almost too young to remember it. I think Saqib maybe a little better remembers Peter Corner, his father. But his father was a flashy left-hander. You never knew what was going to come off his racket. He was an extraordinary shot maker, but he could beat himself. It was a totally different kind of game that his son is developing. And I feel like Corda could well be the, you know, he could well surpass all of the Americans, including Fritz and, and Paul and Tiafo, potentially. You know, not, that's not going to happen in the next year, but in the next five years, he might. It, but that's going to depend on physical, on his physical well-being. No, oh, he's a blue chip stock for me. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sold. If he can stay healthy, I think there's a lot of upside. So another name that I wanted to talk about is uh, Stefano Sissipas. You both mentioned him in your tier rankings. Uh, so Steve, I'll let you go first and then Gil can come in. Same question. A lot of talk on Twitter is Clay's becoming his season of prominence. This is where he can make his mark. He's made the final. He's a two-time defending champ at Monte Carlo. A lot of tennis analysts, my co-host Matt Zemek, uh, Owen from Popcorn Tennis, a lot of people believe this is where the major can come if it can come. And now with Carlos Alcaraz, Sinner, Runa, uh, he has company who's younger, who will be contending for these t- this Roland Garros titles. So do you see Tsitsipas as a potential winner again uh, at Roland Garros? Are you still a believer? He's fairly young, but there's also a lot of younger talent underneath him who's kind yeah, of eclipsed in Jason Alcaraz. I mean, I just don't think you can discount what he did two years ago. You can't discount winning Monte Carlo two, two years in a row, now going for three in a row. He's, he's talked about it a lot. He's probably most comfortable on these courts, despite the fact that he has a transitional kind of game and does like to get to the net and attack. And he did reach the finals in Australia this year. So we know he can play, you know, great tennis on hard courts as well. But no, I don't, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't put him among the, say, the top two or three favorites, but I put him in that next tier. If you want to talk about French open favorites somewhere in the, say the four to six group, fourth, fifth, fifth or sixth best chance. And, uh, but again, we have to hope that his shoulder is healed and that he's physically at his best. And, and in the coming weeks, we're going to find out, but he, he loves the clay and he had, he has the game to succeed on. 
Gail, same question. Uh, his report card at French and sorry, Wimbledon and Australia, uh, US Open hasn't been too good. So do you believe the notion that if he wins a major, it's going to come at Roland Garros? Or do you believe that, you know, Mark Philippoussis and maybe adding more voices, he has time on his hand, he could be a late bloomer and maybe sneak a major elsewhere as well? I think he'll have a chance to do it elsewhere as well. It's very clear what holds him back uh, because his movement is, in in my opinion, even underrated. Uh, he is so athletic. He covers the court so well. His forehand is as good as anyone's, and his serve is really, really big. And that's the basis of, uh, and his volleys are great. It's all about the backhand. The backhand is not at the level that uh, his opponents, um, basically his opponents can just take advantage of that. Uh, quite simply, it, it drags down the rest of his game, uh, which to me in a way is a good thing because if he can, if he can figure some things out on that side, he could be off to the races in in some ways, whether that be developing a, a return strategy that's more reliable, a, a block return, a backhand slice, or just ways to tweak the one-hander. Uh, with that being said, some players will go their entire career with uh, with a clear weakness that they're never able to to figure out. Like that's also part of our game. Uh, it's not as simple as identifying a weakness, training it, and magically it's going to get better. So that's the big question. Uh, with with where he's at right now, if he never makes some sort of market improvement on that backhand, he can still win a major. It's just a couple things need to fall in place. His form, the draw, uh, some injuries at the top. Things would need to go his way, then he can make it happen because he is at that next that next level kind of knocking on the door, not quite there. And those kind of players can win majors sometimes. I think and- Gil made an, an important point there to me. It, it, it was that the backhand, what he can do that I think would be the, the most beneficial change, Gil, is to really, with Philippus's help more than his father's probably, would be to really start implementing that slice a lot more. I, I feel like the, the problem is that the two-handed gang can, when they go back in the backhand and he's trying to come over it with, with the one hand, yeah, he's a brilliant shot maker. And it's funny, the thing is, we talked a lot about the backhand when he first came up because when it came to aesthetics, it was fun to watch the one-handed backhand. We always marvel at great one-handed backhands, but it is so, it's definitely vulnerable. And I feel like the slice could make a difference to set up his forehand more if he could develop a low biting slice that that could really add an important ingredient to his game, that might be the answer. But I also agree with Gil that even if that remains a, 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 a weakness that he can still, he can still contend for majors and win a few, and it doesn't have to be exclusively rolling Garros. It could be clearly could be the Australian open where he lost to Djokovic in the final this year. And sooner or later, He's bound to have a good U.S. Open. I don't think it's the surface. I think it's he just has not come in there in peak form in the last bunch of years, and he hasn't been able to show us his best, and so be it. But I, I know I think he's going to have opportunities to win either the Australian or U.S. Open. Wimbledon remains to be seen. The other improvement, of course, Bill has to be that return has got to become a little bit more effective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's wrap this up 10 more minutes. Let's talk about Rafa Nadal, even though – uh, he's under, 
a cloud of uh, health issues and still trying to recover. So, Gil, if he does play, say, Madrid, uh, is he at a stage of his career that he probably can play seven, eight matches going into Roland Garros and still be one of the top favorites? Uh, and the big if is if he's fully healthy. How many matches would would Nadal need? He's He, he always ble- believes in reps. He's a guy, if he doesn't have a tough match, he goes and hits two hours after a 6-1, 6-1 win. So how would you rate his chances if he laces up for Madrid? I think that's enough. Uh, I think two tournaments and Roland Garros, assuming he would play Rome as well, I, I think that's enough, especially because I'm a big believer that uh, the, the, the format of majors helps players as great as Rafa, who may not be at 100% at the very start, uh, to still kind of afford them time to get to 100%. Because it's an 128-person draw with 32 seeds, you often have opponents in the first couple rounds who aren't quite as threatening. Sometimes that's not the case. You could get unlucky. Uh, I don't know. If I were to look at the rankings, it might be someone like uh, Francisco Sarundolo, might be uh, a dangerous player outside of the top 32. But those players are, are chances are you're not going to draw those players. So I always like to keep that in mind. My biggest concern is the the lack of confidence that can be drawn from the last eight or so months where even when he's played, he hasn't been winning. I would worry not that if he plays Madrid, that's not enough time. It's, is it enough time to get the wins that he needs? You know, because it it's, it's the mentality. It's getting back into the winning mentality that might be an issue for, for, for Rafa at this point. Do you agree, Steve, that mentally, are you concerned mentally about all the losing and what effect that can have? Absolutely. Because he, he, you put your finger on it. He really hasn't been the same player since he managed to win his 14th Roland Garros last year, he kind of bluffed his way into the Wimbledon semis and finally fended off Fritz and then had a default to Kyrgios and didn't play well. And it played one tournament before the open lost to Krorich, didn't play well at the open against Tiapo. And it just spiraled from there in, in the brief in the few appearances he's made. So yes, that weighs on his mind. I guess conversely, Gil, the only thing that would encourage me from his standpoint is a year ago, he knows how much he was suffering on the way to Roland Garros, and he walked up the court against Shapovalov in Italy, and he was not physically right. And he had to get those injections before every match in Roland Garros, and he still won it, and he won it pretty convincingly. So that 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 may be reassuring in the back of his mind, but it has been a very difficult last eight nine months, as you said, and therefore I think he really could use some kind of a boost. I think we could particularly use winning one of these clay events, even if it's just one, en route to Roland Garros. If he pulls off a Madrid or a Rome, Madrid, he's never liked the altitude, but if he won Rome again where he's had plenty of success, or if he's ready for Barcelona and he got that, whatever it might be, get the matches and get the confidence back of winning a title because it's been so long. And, yeah, I I think it's going to be fascinating to watch him. All right, so I think we covered a lot of ground unless Gil wants to add something here. I'm going to just put in a few rapid-fire, quick-fire questions for both of you, and we can end the show. Okay, so, sounds good. All right, so Gil, you can go first. Will we have a new Masters 1000 Series winner during the clay stretch? Yes or no? Yes, chances are at Monte Carlo. Steve? 
I agree. I agree. Miss Monte Carlo, as we speak, and we're down to the round of 16 is wide open. Decent chance could happen here. It might happen in when one of the it's not impossible for it to happen in Rome or Madrid either, but this might be the most likely place. All right. So who's who's gonna win? Girl, Steve, you can go first. Who's gonna win more clay court matches in this stretch all the way to Roland Garros? Djokovic, Sinner, Alcaraz, Sisipas, or someone else? Uh, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna say Djokovic. I'm balanced because I think we're gonna see we're, we're, no matter what happens in Monte Carlo, I think he's gonna win a lot of matches in the others, particularly in Rome and Madrid. Enough that he would probably be the most consistent performer of that group. Could be tight, but I would go with him. I'm also gonna say Djokovic. Uh, although if if you have like an Alcaraz coming back in Barcelona, he may play just as many events as Djokovic. That could even out the missing out of Monte Carlo. Okay. Will Alexander Zverev be a top 20 player after Roland Garros because he's defending a lot of points? Gil? I haven't done the math, but my thinking would be no. That's what I'm leaning. (laughs) but, But I think in reality, he'll be a top 20 player. Uh, maybe from a maybe the he won't have those points, but in reality he'll be a top twenty level player. He will, he will indeed, and yeah, very unlikely that he will be top twenty. So I'm agreeing with both of you, but I'm saying that from Wimbledon on, but particularly hardcore season to the end of the year, he will reemerge in a very big way and make a move, and I think end the year back in the top ten. Which of these non-top 20 or non-top 30 players will leave a big mark in the clay season? Serendolo, Quinton Hallis, or throw in a name, but uh, I have only two names, but you can throw a name as well, Gil. Who's your dark horse, basically? Sure. Uh, I, I love Alice's serve, but definitely in, in that grouping, Serendolo, I think Serendolo has one of the best forehands in the game, bar none, and his serve really leaves a lot to be desired. But on clay, he can get into enough return games to break serve quite a bit. Uh, and, and therefore, he's not as negatively affected by the shortcomings of his serve. So Sarindolo is someone who I, I have been looking for uh, to break out on the European clay for a little bit of time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, he played quite well against Berrettini, a bit unlucky to lose in Monte Carlo. And, and yeah, he's going to have a lot more cracks in the weeks ahead, and he's going to come into Roland Garros with a lot of confidence. Doesn't mean we all couldn't be questioning ourselves because he happens to lose early there, but with the, with the right kind of a draw or with a big win early, that could, you know, he, he could make an impression there. All right, last one. Are we going to have a new Roland Garros champion? Hmm. Steve. Oh, it's so, it's, that's so hard to call. I mean, at this point, we don't know Rafa's physical. We don't really know where he's going to be physically. We know that Djokovic is make, going to make a big bid for this crown, as is, as is Alcaraz. Sinner is going to be capable of winning it. Sitsapas might have his moment. So I would say that, you know, I, I would lean toward Djokovic now to win the title. But I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, if it was Alcaraz, if it was Sinner, if it was Sitsapas winning in Roland Garros this year. Yeah, I make a point not to pick majors until the draw comes out. I just don't want to have that pick in my head uh, because then it, it it biases me when the draw does ultimately come out and it's time to preview it. Uh, but if right now, I'm I would say above 50% uh, 
uh, yes on that question, that we will get a new Roland Garros champion. I think uh, because of the things that Steve just went through, there are enough pathways that you can see it happening where, where I'll give it above a 50% for yes. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thank you both. Uh, some questions were generic. Now, before, a lot of... we go, before yeah. we go, Gil, I insist, and I know you're going to agree with me, that our modest moderator, Mr. Ali, give us some parting shots, some parting comments, thoughts of his own. We've had such an opportunity to weigh in with our views, right, Gil? But I'd like to hear Sakib with a few parting thoughts before we close the podcast. Uh, about the season? Um, yeah, uh, what, think... what you're expecting, because we've given our projections, and you've kind of laid back. I'd love to get your, your just a few of your thoughts about what, what lies ahead here during uh, in this clay court campaign. I still think a healthy Sissipas and Yannick Sinner will have a lot of say this clay season. Those are two of the guys, and Djokovic and Alcaraz are obviously going to be dictating the play. The tournament, they enter, they'll be big favorites. Nadal, uh, you know, he won Australia without playing for five or six months, so he definitely can do it here again. But I definitely think, uh, yeah, I mean, the signs are not good yet. So I'm expecting big things from Yannick Sinner. And as for Medvedev, I think he will float and make some some relevant results, but I don't expect him to win any clay court title. And now he'll prove me wrong this Sunday, but that's what I think. <laughs> that would be quite impressive if he proved you wrong, because the only, the only guy since 2000 to even make both the, the final of uh, Miami and Monte Carlo are members of the big three. Nobody else has been able to do it. Yeah, that's a tough transition. I, I give Medvedev a shot at winning one clay title. I don't think he's going to win Roland Garros, but I, what I'm expecting is some very consistent, strong showings, some semis, some finals, and not the typical uh, clay court campaign for Medvedev. I think it'll be much better than anything we've seen from him in the past. Agreed. But I would argue, Steve, that that would be tier two. Fair enough. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> We're we're just it you know we're uh, we're getting Steve initiated with the with the tears, Saki. Yeah, but, I have to get my he's arms gonna get the hang that. of it. I, I do. Yeah, you'll get the hang of it. <laughs> and, and and also like I was in uh, East Trail, so I was very impressed with Quentin Halis, the kind of game he plays, and if he, his ranking builds the right way, uh, and he wins a match in Paris, that's what I'm saying. Uh, and he plays in Chartres. I think he's someone who has the game to trouble any big name. I, I'm not saying he's going to pull off the upset. But he definitely had me impressed. He's my 250 kind of follow that I want to uh, base mm-hmm. my tennis followership this year. He's checking all the boxes, hitting big, great feel, great backhand. He's hitting the short backhand returns, cross court, a la Korda, a la Safin. So there's a lot of upside if the guy continues to be healthy and wins more matches. So Huge that's my... serve. Did you oh, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Huge serve. 16 aces, I think, in his loss to Ruud in the semis. So. So yeah, guys, thank you very much again. Uh, hopefully I, I've done justice to your time and your expertise and hopefully we can do this sometime soon next year. And it was a wonderful chat. I'm going to post this soon. I enjoyed it. Thank, thank you both. It was good fun. It was. It was great. You do a great job, Sakib. Keep it up. And uh, yeah, this was really enjoyable. <laughs>